Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Hello, Food Junkies podcast listeners. This is Clarissa Kennedy, and I'm here to wish you a happy early podcast release day. What's the reason? Well, the wait is over. Enrollment for Dr. Vera Tarman's Sugar and Food Addiction course with Adapt Your Life Academy is open, and we have a special discount code for you, just for you. To thank you for listening each and every week, this code will entitle you up to 10% off the course, which is incredibly thorough and great for both professionals interested in working in the field and individuals just starting out on their own sugar-free journey to learn the ins and outs of food addiction. There will also be a three-week support group where Vera, Molly, and I will be doing two weekly lives and daily support to answer any questions you may have. We can't wait to meet you. P.S. This course will not be offered again until the spring of 2023. So sign up now. And when you do, please use the code FOODJUNKIES10. That's capital F, lowercase, O-O-D-J-U-N-K-I-E-S, and then the number 10. The code will also be in today's show notes because that sounded very complicated. Let's get to business. Today, we have an amazing guest, Dr. Brett Schur. He is board-certified cardiologist and the medical director of Diet Doctor. He's also the host of the Diet Doctor podcast. He focuses on preventing and reversing heart disease by using food as medicine with a low-carbohydrate diet. He's also certified in functional medicine, nutrition, personal training, and behavior modification. Impressive, right? On this episode, we discuss the cholesterol confusion how to talk to your doctor about this. What questions should you ask? We also talk about this higher satiety eating intervention that Brett is currently so excited about. We ask his thoughts on intermittent fasting and food addiction. This is a great episode with so many takeaways, but I'm sure you know by now, I say this about every single episode. So let's get on with the show. Okay, hello everybody. Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. My name is Dr. Vera Tarman and I am your co-host today along with Clarissa Kennedy. Today we are speaking with Dr. Brett Scher of the Notorious Diet Doctor fame. (laughs) Dr. Brett Scher is a board-certified cardiologist having studied at Ohio State University College of Medicine. He started off as the usual cardiologist steeped in cardiovascular procedures and medications but eventually found that non- medical lifestyle interventions such as nutrition, behavioral changes, personal fitness were much more effective than the traditional interventions he was expected to promote. So Dr. Sher is a president of, I guess that's your day job, a boundless health cardiology at Sharp Healthcare. But of interest to us, um, he's also the medical director of the internationally renowned Diet Doctor website and the Diet Doctor podcast. He's also author of the book, Your Best Health Ever, The Cardiologist's Surprisingly Simple Guide to What Really Works. Furthermore, he has an online course, which I took, about the true story behind cholesterol, 
uh, the lab work and the low-carb approach to cholesterol treatment. And guess what? It does not include sugar and processed foods. Mm -hmm. Hello, Dr. Sher. Wow. Hello. Thank you for that introduction. It's, uh, it's wonderful to be here today. Yeah. And thank you so much for putting time aside to speak with us because your, your work is well known in our little community. So let's start with your personal story, how you went from being a conventional cardiologist, mm -hmm. doing all the stuff that we were all trained to do, to standing outside of the norm and being actually a leading spokesperson for the low carb movement. Yeah, well, thanks for that question. It's, it's an interesting story, I think, because, you know, I was always interested in prevention. So I knew when I was getting involved in cardiology, I wanted to focus on prevention. And my fellowship was sort of a combined preventive and general cardiology fellowship. But then I get out into the, you know, the quote unquote real world and start my cardiology practice, still wanting to focus on prevention, even though I was still in the hospital and doing all the different things that cardiologists do. And it didn't take long for me to sort of realize that I wasn't having the impact I wanted to have with prevention. And I wasn't sure why, but I knew it was frustrating. It was frustrating for my patients and it was frustrating for me because, I, you know, maybe I was a little naive. I thought I was just going to storm in and just fix everybody right, and, and have everybody change their lifestyle. And it just wasn't working. And it took me a little while and a couple of iterations to kind of figure it out. But first I thought, you know, maybe I just need more time with my patients. So that's when I started Boundless Health. And it's like a side job with a friend of mine who was a health coach and just thinking, spend more time in sort of like a boutique practice. But I was fortunate that the health coach I was working with was very knowledgeable about ketogenic diets. And on a couple of our kind of tricky patients, he suggested we start a keto diet on them. And of course, my first reaction was, what are you crazy? I don't want to kill the guy, you know, like, because that's what I was trained. That's how right. I was taught. But luckily, he, you know, encouraged me to sort of look into it. And, and so I did. I, I was astonished to find the research that already existed and, and how much information was out there that I was never taught. I had to sort of find it on my own. And then once I had that base, it, the, the basis of that, I started it. I started a low-carb diet myself and started using it in my patients and, and saw changes, you know, and I'm sure, you know, many low-carb diets tell us, or many low-carb doctors tell the same stories that you see these changes. You you've never seen before in terms of people losing weight and enjoying their diet and just feeling better and having more energy and all the metabolic improvements that you see that you really can't see even with a fistful of drugs. So it was really impressive. And that, you know, the once you see it, you can't unsee it is, is very true for me. So that started me down that path. And so then I wanted to incorporate it in my practice as much as I could. And, you know, as a practicing physician, you can help that one person in front of you. You can help one person at a time. But I sort of felt this urge to get this information out there because I was very frustrated that here I was, a very well-trained cardiologist with, you know, internal medicine residency, chief resident, cardiology fellowship. And I never heard of any of this. So I really I, wanted to... Let me yeah, interrupt you. you. You did hear about it, though, when you you probably heard about Robert Atkins, because you, you grew up at the same time. Well, you grew up a little bit ahead of, uh, behind me, but we grew up with Atkins. And for some reason, that was like scary stuff, wasn't it? Yeah. So that's a good point. When I say I hadn't heard of it, I should say I wasn't taught it, right? Yeah. So I've heard of Atkins in the, in the book and sort of the yeah. lay media. But in terms of medical teaching, yes. nobody mentions Atkins. Nobody mentions keto. Nobody mentions low carb. Yeah. And if it does come up, it's like, oh, that is incredibly dangerous. End of story. No further yeah. discussion. Yeah, I think you so that's what, to know that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's what really made me want to get this out more. So that's when I wrote my book and started doing some video courses and started a podcast and then was fortunate enough to team up with the folks at Diet Doctor to then go on board with Diet Doctor so we could reach even more people with this message. So that's, uh, that's my journey, <laughs> how I got to where I am now. 
So just sort of put things into context. So the kind of stuff you did before, like medical interventions, like stents and investigations and all that stuff, even to the point of some fairly invasive stuff, you write in your book was not only was it not helpful, but it was like really not helpful. Like there was no real recovery that you saw, right? With the traditional approach. Yeah. So I do want to make one differentiation. If you are in the middle of having a heart attack, then Mm -hmm. absolutely the invasive procedures and the people who do them are incredible. And the advances have been amazing. So that part far and away, I do believe in. But from a prevention standpoint, from a you know, early treatment standpoint, you know, stents will fix this much of your coronary artery. And I say fix in in quotes, but it's a systemic disease. It is inflammatory. It is metabolic dysfunction and lipids play a role, but it is a systemic disease. So to think that putting a stent in can help is really misguided. And that's unfortunately the way it's approached. And the same thing, treating or giving a medication to treat one one marker ldl and think that's going to solve everything is also misguided and it sounds simplistic the way i'm saying it and most doctors would say no no no, i don't believe that but that's how practice really has evolved to get to that point and it's it's really unfortunate because it's too myopic too short-sighted rather than seeing the bigger picture Okay, so just to summarize this bit, so meds and procedures that we have today, definitely useful in the acute setting, but in the chronic or the preventative sense, not so good. Like even stuff as basic as hypertensive medication and lipid medication, just on its own. Again, again, they they have a role in a subset of patients, but I think what we've done is we've taken, you know, in the, in the higher risk or secondary prevention patients, the data is a little more supportive of those medications. But we've taken that to the average, you know, 50-year-old who's overweight and has metabolic dysfunction and say, oh, just take these medications and you'll be fine because they work in this higher risk group. So they'll work for you too. That's where I think we're really misguided. Okay. Okay, good. So instead, you're you're suggesting a low-carb lifestyle or keto lifestyle. Can you define what that is? Because keto means a million things to... Yeah. Well, I mean, really what I recommend is improving somebody's lifestyle. And there are a hundred different ways to do that. There isn't one way to do it. But one reason why I really support a ketogenic or low-carb diet is because it's not being promoted anywhere else, or I shouldn't say anywhere else. It's not being promoted within mainstream medicine. And people really need those resources to to access it. And it works so well. So really a low-carb diet, low-carb nutrition, low-carb way of eating, in my mind, is anything 100 grams of carbs or less. And then as you go down, you know, that's the liberal low-carb. And then moderate low-carbs around 50 grams. And then very low-carb is around 30 grams. Now, you can be in ketosis at any of those levels, depending on who you are, your insulin sensitivity, how much physical activity you do, et cetera. But pretty much everybody's going to be in ketosis if you're eating 30 grams or less of carbohydrates. No, but I don't think ketosis is necessary for healthy weight loss or for improving your metabolic health. But a lot of people, when they start with a ketogenic diet, will see pretty impressive improvements. And then they can modulate it if they need to, to maybe switch to a moderate low carb or even a liberal low carb or stick with the keto diet if it's working for them and continues to work. Okay. So the fact that you're saying that even at 100 grams of carbs a day, and we're talking net carbs, not gross, right? Yeah. Right. I sorry. Yeah, I should clarify. I I tend to talk in net carbs. Okay, right. All right. Um, so, so that would allow somebody who's vegan or plant based to actually benefit from your suggestions, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, one of the hardest parts of being vegan or plant based is getting enough protein 
without the carbs adding up a lot. But if you allow about 100 grams of carbs, you certainly can get there. Okay. All right. Good. So the other question now, Chrissy disappeared, I think, because of our issues with the internet. But she wanted to uh, you know, address this. I think you and uh, diet doctors introduced, or maybe it's you, the higher satiety eating plan. Can you t- tell us a little bit about what that means? Yeah, yeah. So higher satiety eating, it goes back to that point that, that I made before, that there's not one diet for everybody. And I think actually that's sort of the thought process that got us into this mess, that the low-fat diet is the one diet for everybody. And clearly it is not. Well, I don't think we should fall into the same trap with a ketogenic or a low carb diet either. You know, it works for so many people, but we have to acknowledge that for some people it doesn't work for whether they just doesn't fit with their personal preferences or their, their ethnic upbringing and the, the diet that they've, you know, grown up with or for whatever reason, it's important to provide alternatives. So one thing that's really great about this higher satiety concept is it fits with any diet. It fits with a vegan diet, with a vegetarian diet, even with a keto diet. So it's more of a dietary philosophy and concept than a specific specific bucket of a diet. And basically what it is, is it's focusing on the foods that are going to make you feel full at the fewest amount of calories, right? Anybody can can feel full just by gorging on calories and eating too many calories, but that's unlikely to help with healthy weight loss and improving metabolic health. But if you can choose the right foods for you that are going to help you feel full and give you the nutrition you need and foods that you can enjoy while still helping you just naturally reduce your calories without even thinking about it, then that's, that's a definite win in my book. So um, it tends to be you know higher protein diets with low energy density, higher fiber foods, and of course, reducing what we call the hedonic factors of food, the ultra-processed foods, the combined refined carbs, sugars, fats, salt, that sort of package together. So avoiding those. And that, that's how we're approaching this high satiety form of eating. And again, the beauty of it is it works with almost any dietary pattern. So it can work for just about anybody. Okay. So basically just as long as you're, well, eat as much as you like with the low, least caloric or the most caloric density, basically. And that's generally pretty good then. Well, so you want nutrient, high yes. nutrient density with a lower yes. calorie density, right? So, and I know the terms all get confusing, but that's the balance. You want the maximum nutrients for the minimum calories, but it's not just counting calories eating low fat, high carb, because that's usually not going to get you the nutrients, not going to get you the protein and satiety. So it's flipping that on its head and saying, yes, protein, 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 because that's where you're going to get so much of your nutrients with fewer calories, but then still filling in with the low energy density foods and the fiber to fill up your stomach and give you that other aspect of satiety. Because satiety is this word and this concept that a lot of people don't quite understand. And we'll we're really sort of combining three aspects. There's the short-term satiation of just like how full you are at your meal now. There's sort of the medium-term satiety about when you want to eat next. And then the longer-term satiety sort of over you know days and weeks about if you reduce your caloric content or your caloric consumption. So we're sort of combining all three of those concepts of satiety into one because they all count. They all matter. Um, mm-hmm. And it, you know, you could say a keto diet is the original high satiety diet because most people, when they start a keto diet, they don't even think about calories and their calories just go down. And they say, wait a second, I didn't eat lunch today. That's never happened to me before. Right. And it's like, it's like this new concept that you don't have to eat all the time and you can reduce the amount you eat because you're eating better. And that's sort of the key concept. One question I'm going to ask you, because you're speaking highly of the keto slash low carb movement or uh, food plans. 
do calories count to some degree? I, and I know that what type of calories, it, it's all about that, you know, and obviously if you're eating a lot of carbs, the insulin goes up and then the weight gain. Is, but even on a keto, if you're, if you're eating like bacon all day, like or pork rinds <laughs> all day, I mean, I'm, my thought is that calories still count, although they're secondary. So anyway, what's your opinion about that? Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I do think calories do still count. I think that's why we see a number of people who stall in their, you know, healthy weight loss progress on a keto diet because the cream is is creeping in and the bacon is creeping in and you're getting you're just you think of fat as sort of a free food, but the calories and fat do add up. Now, what I see clinically and I can't point to research studies on this is initially you can kind of just eat as much fat as you want is your body's transitioning to that fat burning process and you're starting to lose weight despite yeah. eating all that fat. But then there becomes this point where all of a sudden you stop losing weight and you can regain, or sorry, you can, you can get back on track of, on your healthy weight loss by reducing your fat at that point for a lot of people while still remaining in ketosis. So it's kind of this balance. Now, you know, yeah. the internet is a funny place to, to make any kind of point because you're going to get all these people saying, well, look, I eat as much fat as I want. I've maintained my weight. And that is true. So many people can do that. But what I'm focusing on is the people who struggle with that and, yeah. and find that they've stalled or aren't making their progress and what what they can change to make improvements. And I think in that point, maybe lowering the fat, increasing the protein, possibly yeah. even increasing the carbs a little bit can be helpful, but it's all tweaking, you know, little yeah. bits. It's not going from a 80% fat diet to a 30% fat diet. Maybe it's going yeah. from an 80% fat diet to a 65% fat diet, which right. is still, I'm, you know, quite a bit of fat, but I'm that really can good. still benefit. Yeah, I'm really glad you're saying that because we are having people now repeatedly saying, look, we're following, we're following a keto plan and why are we, why am I not losing this weight? And, mm -hmm. and so then, you know, we're hesitant to say, well, there has to be some portion control, but there, there may have to be or some portion tweaking yeah. of particular yeah. groups. So I appreciate your saying that. And that suggests, doesn't it, that there is actually that, that concept of set point, which we want to throw out the window. Mm -hmm. There may actually be some truth to that concept of a set point weight, weight. Yeah. And, you know, I did a podcast interview with Dr. Stephen Guianet and yes. know, he, he talks exactly. a lot about the brain, about the set points about, yes. and on the one hand, it's really depressing. He has to say, because it sort of sounds like we are really hardwired to not lose weight. Like mm -hmm. our body's going to do everything possible to not lose weight. So we almost have to trick our body into losing weight. And I think that's where sort of this higher satiety concept can come into play. Okay. But it's, it's true that we are going to struggle whether it's a set point, whether it's our satiety hormones, our hunger hormones, whatever the case may be, there comes a point where even on the best formulated keto diets, people may struggle. Um, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. I think that's true. Good. Okay. So before we move on to the diet, doctor, what's your concept about food addiction? Where do you see that? How, how much value do you see that as playing in your work? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Bef again, before I got into the whole low carbon keto movement, I never heard the term food addiction, right? I never thought about food addiction. Boy, it is such an important concept because how many, when I think back, how many patients did I see who probably had elements of food addiction and just, just totally did not recognize it? So I'm so thankful for people like you who have made such, such a, uh, an important contribution to this field to making it well known. And, you know, one of the things I think about food addiction, though, is it's a muddy field because everybody can say like, well, I don't, you know, I can eat two potato chips and I'm not addicted to them. I don't have to. Well, sure. Someone can have two beers and they're not addicted to them either. So it's not like 100 percent black or white. I think that's where a lot of people sort of get get a little mixed up on it. So there's true. 
it's clear there are some people who have addictive tendencies and for for them food or carbs or sugar different types of foods can certainly be addicted addictive and i think we need to address that because we can just say all you have to do is change the way you're eating but if it's an addiction it's like telling an alcoholic all you got to do is stop drinking alcohol start drinking you know seltzer water right like that's not going to work it it takes a much more in-depth and focused intervention and that's where someone like you comes in just so handy to, to be able to provide that for people so it's really opened my eyes to this whole new world of interventions and therapies that needs to be addressed rather than yeah. glossed over. Well, like Chrissy mentioned earlier on, I think we both, we see ourselves as people that help to tweak what is otherwise a fabulous food plan, like the keto low carb. It's already inherently food addiction friendly, but then, right. you know, like the process industry has gotten in everywhere, you know, they started to introduce these crazy keto bombs and keto this and keto bars and, you know, derailing a great plan. Yeah. And I think that is the the biggest weakness, if you want to say, of the keto movement, so to speak, is that, that we've gone too far into the packaged product and it's like, oh, it's keto, it's healthy, eat as much as you want. No. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. It really should be a whole foods keto diet to minimize all of that that temptation. Okay. So now I'd like to switch tracks because you're also the uh, spokesperson for Diet Doctor podcast. And I don't know specifically the web page itself, but you're definitely a strong part of that. So can you, do you mind telling us a little bit of the history of the Diet Doctor podcast? Not the podcast, sorry, the web page, because even the name Diet Doctor, that has the, initially when I saw that, I thought, oh my God, I don't want to do that. That's, that's diet. (laughs) How did it get from there to what it is now, which is really world renowned? Yeah, so it's a great story, and this is well before I I came yeah. on to Diet Doctor. But Dr. Andres Einfeld, he's the founder and CEO, and he's a primary care doctor in Sweden, and he has been a big proponent of low carbon keto diets. And he wrote a a blog in Swedish, and then wrote a book in Swedish, and it was a bestseller. Started a website in Swedish, and then translated it all into English. And from there, boom, it just grew into what it is today. So now we're a, a team of, well, I don't know, even know what we are now, maybe 60 or 70 people. It was just him and his brother doing it before. And now we're oh. 60 or 70 people. We're the, the biggest low-carb website in the world. But you do have a good point. The name He came up with the name Kostoktorn, which is Swedish, translated to diet doctor. But it really doesn't capture what we are. The name doesn't really capture what we are anymore because it's, it's, yeah, we don't want to talk about diets, right? It's not a diet culture. It's really, you know, forming a lifestyle that works for you. But the the message is still the same, even if the, the name is maybe a little off. And I came on board maybe about four years ago to start doing the podcast and then came on as the medical director about three and a half years ago. And it's just been fantastic because I, I just love being able to reach so many people. I'm trying to figure out how to design content and programs to just reach as many people as possible and help as many people as possible. Because one is getting the the knowledge out there in a way that they can that they can digest and learn, but not that's just clickbaity and you yeah. know just the headlines. Like that's something I really try and do is get beyond the headlines, get beyond the fantastic clickbait and really talk about the substance and how people can integrate it into their lives, but also talk about sort of the downsides and what you need to look for and, and you know, and how to make adjustments. Those are all so important. And yeah, now in addition to all the keto and low carb, that's now that we're introducing the higher satiety so that we can reach even more people, you know, beyond the low carb sphere. But we still want to keep that core of the, you know, the keto and low carb just worked well for so yeah. many people um, to be able to offer both of those options. Just so people 
know, can you kind of tell us a little bit about what the Diet Doctors offers and that it, and how it is not just a diet website? Like, what do you actually do? I know you have a private and you have a public piece. Mm-hmm. And tell us a little bit about what it does. Yeah. So one thing, we have over a thousand recipes that are free on the website that anybody can access. We have educational guides on from a science basis, from a practical basis, success stories. So just all this information for people to access, again, for free. And then for our paid members, we have uh, specific courses you can do, whether it's a five-week keto course or a 10-week weight loss course or exercise course. And then we also have our connect group where you can connect with like-minded individuals going through a similar similar process that we have our moderators helping out. We can ask uh, Dr. Andreas and I questions on the group. So we really want to to build this community. And we have built this community of people trying to succeed with improving their metabolic health with healthy weight loss. So we can all learn from each other and share from each other. In addition to falling back on what is sort of evidence proven to be helpful, we also want to you know tap into the practical aspects of what's really helping people, where people are faltering and how we can all come together to help each other. So we offer that for our members as well. So it, it's a mix of just trying to provide as much free content as we have can plus giving you know, the little extra level of, of content and services for our members. And, and I know that you have, because I'm on that list, a list of doctors who promote a low-carb or keto lifestyle for right. free. And that's like across the world. And it's, I think it's a pretty big list. Yeah, we have um, over, I think, 750 providers on the list. And we've got a free continuing medical education course too. So if you take our CME course, you can get listed on our website and it's for doctors and nutritionists and you know even even health coaches or nurse practitioners or PAs you can take the course and then get listed on our website and yeah people can find you and it can help it can definitely help with um, promotion and just for people listening the thing that i really like about the diet doctors i can really trust the content so you've got it's definitely um you know a sound medical advice it's not just some kind of crazy uh, internet uh, you know let's do this it's really well sought, well researched. Well, thank you. Thank you. That's like the cornerstone of my job to make sure that people can say that about our content. So I really appreciate that because that's my focus. Thank you. Okay. And so do you have a Facebook group as well, since that seems to be the way that people are doing? You know, we did, but we transitioned our Facebook group onto our own platform now. So it's all in our app in the Diet oh. Doctor app um, in our okay. connect group for our members. Yeah. Well, I didn't even know you had an app. Okay. Well, there you go. Okay. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the Diet Doctor podcast, how long that's been going on and what you're doing there? Yeah. Yeah. So that's been a lot of fun. I mean, I, I had my own podcast, the Low Carb Cardiologist podcast for a few years, but then joined Diet Doctor and started running the Diet Doctor podcast. And that's been, gosh, I want to say almost four years now. I'd have to go back and look for sure. A little over three years, maybe. And, you know, that's just my opportunity to connect with so many experts in so many different fields. And, and just try and get information out there for people to get to know the experts, but also, you know, kind of try and dissect some of the, the specifics of the different content. So whether it's keto, whether it's weight loss, whether it's metabolic health, whether it's food addiction, you know, everything that sort of surrounds this concept of people trying to improve their metabolic health, trying to help with healthy weight loss, anything we can touch to help people, you know, progress and learn. So I always say about the podcast, if nobody listened, I'd still be doing it because I just love having these conversations with people. I learn so much. And I love meeting these people and they're such wonderful individuals. Yeah. Um, but the fact that so many people listen and benefit from it is just added bonus. Absolutely. That's how we feel at Food Junkies Podcast. Uh, Chrissy, I'm not able to message you. Do you want to jump in there somewhere? 
Well, I just wondered if you had a particular guest where they spoke to you and, and you, you had a takeaway from that interview that you has really changed the way that either you eat your lifestyle approach or something you felt you immediately had to share with everyone you know. Wow. That's a good question. That's a good question. You know, I think maybe not just one guest, but the whole concept of focusing on higher protein eating. So whether it was, you know, Ted Naiman with higher protein, or even when I had an interview with, with Dr. Andreas Einfeld about higher protein, and then talking to uh, Stefan Guinea about higher satiety and kind of moving more in that direction, opening my eyes and my mind to that a little bit more has been really helpful. And again, in, in this vein of, you know, if keto and low carb isn't working, why and what can we do about it? And I really think that that's a, a great tool to have to help those people who it's not working for. So, you know, having that focus on a number of podcasts has really helped me. Yeah. Good question. Yeah. Well, I think for sure, both Molly and I, who's the other co-host, we work in frontline food addiction. And after we interviewed Ted Naiman, it was just like, this makes so much sense for our volume eaters because, you know, they can continue to consume these higher satiety foods and it is not causing the weight gain or the, I guess, emotional distress that they were feeling before in regards to, they were still getting the stretch of the stomach, but it wasn't resulting in other negative side effects. So I really think that this way of eating, I mean, protein forward has been a game changer for a lot of the food addiction clients that we are currently working with right now. So I couldn't have been more excited when I got that email that this was the new kind of like approach that's happening. And uh, yeah, so I'm just very grateful for, and I send all of the clients to the Diet Doctor podcast. I'm like, do not buy another cookbook. All of your recipes (laughs) and meal plans are there. I also love that the cost is so manageable for people, right? It's yeah. like a monthly fee. It's so low. I don't even know the exact cost, but and it's it, like eleven dollars a month, yeah, hundred dollars like for the whole year, a month, yeah. and that it, it. You just have access to movies done by like Tim Noakes, and you know, it's just like it's the the best resource on the web. I think for anyone starting this lifestyle. So thank you for what you're doing. That's great to hear. Thank you very much. So I'm going to, if you don't mind, uh, we're going to go from volume eating to restricted eating. So uh, which uh, generally speaking, this is an area that I really struggle with because I've been preaching for the longest time, uh, beware of restricted eating. In other words, fasting, because it's it smells too much of starvation, which is something mm-hmm. food addiction does, food addicts do all the time. So what's your intake on intermittent fasting, which is where this usually gets justified? I know the metabolic value of this, but there is this other side. So how do you address that? so that people are not using it secretively. I don't know if it's secretively, but they got the stamp of approval because they're saying it's intermittent fasting and it's healthy, but in fact, trying to lose weight. And it doesn't always work as weight loss. Anyway. Right. Yeah, that's that's another great question. And and so my journey with intermittent fasting sort of started with low carb. And in the beginning, I was like, yes, everybody's got an intermittent fast. This is great. This is such a wonderful intervention. And then I started seeing, you know, some of the science studies saying, no, oh, it's maybe it's not so great when we compare it, you know, in everybody. And I started seeing some of my patients and I not succeed. And I could kind of put the two together. And I'm like, you know, there is sort of this dark underside to intermittent fasting. And what, yeah, what happens, I like that word, yeah, dark underside. Yeah. Because Let's, what happens is whether consciously or not, people say, you know, I've fasted for 18 hours now let's let's go let's make up for it and they actually 
can eat more calories in their yeah. eating window than they otherwise would have if they'd eaten three meals a day. Now, again, not everybody does this. For some people, intermittent fasting is just, or time-restricted eating is just totally natural. Don't even have to think about it and they don't yeah. overeat. But for some people, it's a bit of a struggle. And then they end up sort of, you know, either thinking they can reward themselves with food they wouldn't normally eat, or just the volume increases because they're making up for lost calories or something. And and for so if you're if you are intermittent fasting or if you're a clinician with patients who are intermittent fasting, you really have to watch for that because that can sort of undo any of the potential benefits you think it's having and even make it a, a, a negative effect. And then for longer term fasts, yes. you know, the, the main concern I have for longer term fasts is just the, again, lack of protein and losing muscle mass. Now you can gain that back, but you have to be purposeful about it. So I really think if you want to do a longer term fast, which does have a role for some people, you want to make sure you're getting adequate protein and resistance training before, adequate protein and resistance training after, and still moving your body during the fast, not just sitting on a couch, but still doing some form of, even if it's light resistance training, and then not expecting it to be sort of like a cure-all, like, oh yeah, I totally went off the rails and, you know, yeah, and binge, yeah. so I'm going to do a five-day fast and make up for it. No, no, no. Yeah. I think that's such the wrong approach for it. It's a tool that can be used as part of an otherwise healthy lifestyle on a semi-regular basis that may have some benefits. But if you use it as sort of like a a crutch to correct for something you did quote unquote wrong, then I think it, it's sort of the wrong, not the best approach for, for fasting. Now, one of the things that people say when they're doing intermittent fasting is that they're not hungry in between these long times, whether it's 16 hours or, or whatever it is. And my assumption there is that the only way that that's possible is if they're eating a high enough protein and high enough fat. I mean, that would be, that would be it, right? Like it, it has to be that in the window of eating that it's not just that you're eating the regular carbs that people would normally right. eat. Yeah. Right. And that's a great point. You know, the, if you, if you look at what was the norm, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, it's, yeah. it's six meals a day, you know, constant snacks, you yeah. know, eating all the time, because when you're eating high carb, you sort of need to do that. And that's when people switch to a low carb diet almost without fail, the, the number one thing people say is, I'm not hungry anymore. I don't have to eat six meals a day anymore. I can just eat two meals a day. I've never felt this way in my entire life. And that's just the natural process that happens. So I think time-restricted eating and intermittent fasting is much more effective and easier to do for someone who is eating low-carb or keto. I, I absolutely believe that. Yeah, maybe you can just tell me what I usually advise people is that intermittent fasting is a powerful tool, but especially with the food addict, probably not done alone, like the done and under the care of a medical practitioner or somebody who's very well versed in fasting and also in food addiction. Yeah, I think because I think one of the biggest concepts is whatever you are doing to try and improve your health should not feel like deprivation and should right, not exactly. feel like That's a struggle. It. Yeah. And if it does, then you're, it's probably not the best approach. So you yeah. have to find a way for time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting where it doesn't cross that line and feel like deprivation. Right, exactly. And, you know, hunger equals uh, triggers for food addicts. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. a big trigger. Okay, so be before we get to pushback stuff, Chrissy, did you have something else you wanted to ask? Okay, oh. so the pushback. You must have had pushback, especially earlier days. Like, I mean, I think that low-carb is becoming unless I'm so so much in my bubble that I think that so many people are getting it now. But it seems like it's becoming more well-known, just like food addiction is becoming more well-known. But there's still a lot of uh, pushback in the medical community, in the uh, sort of medical industrial complex. 
Have you had any of that personally or what, what, how have you dealt with that? What are some examples yeah. of you dealt with? Yeah, it, it's a great question. There's definite pushback and you are right. It's still not very well accepted in, you can say the sort of contemporary medical atmosphere. I mean, it's the fear of fear of fat still, you know, fear of animal products, animal foods. And you can see this sort of lay press push for plant-based foods and, and still for low fat. But, you know, that has so much more to do with personal interest, I think, and poor science than it has to do with actual health, unfortunately. And that's sort of this disconnect. But that's where a lot of the pushback is based. And, you know, the other big one is LDL, right? Uh, LDL cholesterol is the biggest pushback when it comes to low-carb or keto. And what I find frustrating, though, is so many people will say, no, you shouldn't try it because your cholesterol may go up. Well, first of all, the literature is very clear that for people who have type 2 diabetes or overweight using a low-carb or keto diet, that your LDL does not go up in the vast majority of people. So for any doctor to be so afraid of it, to say you shouldn't even try it, just seems absurd to me. I mean, if there's a chance it's going to help you, yes, you should try it. And of course, you can follow your labs to see what happens. And the evidence is clear in the majority of the people, LDL does not go up. But then the bigger question is, if LDL does go up, what uh -huh. does it mean? Especially if you're improving your metabolic health, you're losing weight, you're you know, losing fat mass, gaining muscle mass, everything else is improving. What does that rise in LDL mean? And that's where the message does get confusing because it's so much easier to just say, LDL is bad, keep it low, end of story. We don't have to talk about it anymore. Right? That's such an easy message as yeah. opposed to say, well, if LDL goes up a little bit, but your small particles go down and your triglycerides go down and your HDL goes up and your blood pressure comes down and your glucose is better. Okay. Maybe we can accept that. You know, that's a more complicated discussion to get into, which yeah. unfortunately isn't the uh, strength of modern day medicine. So we say to get into complicated discussions and nuance, unfortunately. So, so that's the biggest pushback. And that's what I like to talk a lot about, about putting it into perspective and really zooming out instead of zooming in on the LDL, but zooming out on the whole picture and seeing how LDL fits into this whole puzzle that is your metabolic health. Does, does eating keto or low carb uh, or basically higher fat than we're, we're trained, does it show regardless of whether it's quote good or bad cholesterol, does it show that there is a rise in cholesterol somewhere? Is that actually some, some yeah. a truth that people can get anxious about? Yes. So it certainly can be, right? So when I say the studies show there's no overall rise in LDL on average, yeah. that's when you average everybody out. But there's when you look at the individuals, there's definitely a subset of people where the LDL goes up. And especially for people who are not using a low carb or keto diet to treat their type 2 diabetes or lose weight. For people who are doing it for other reasons, whether it's autoimmune conditions or Nick Norwitz is sort of the prime example of someone who is not overweight, doesn't have type 2 diabetes, but is on a ketogenic diet for other health concerns and seeing great benefits. Or if you're using it to treat a mental health condition, which is a, a whole field now getting a lot of very well needed and well-deserved notoriety. But in those people, they're more likely to see an LDL rise if they're thinner, fitter, you know, in that subset of, of people. So that's where a little more nuance is needed to interpret the LDL rise and then how much of a rise, right? We've seen studies where it may go up 10%, but other markers are improved. So that's probably offset. But then there are some case reports and some published papers where it can go up 100% or even 200%. That's a different story that requires a different lens but still not necessarily a knee jerk of dangerous. This is, you know, the worst thing you could ever do for yourself. We still have to interpret it differently, but I, I, I see those as, as very different rises and very different um, situations.
So maybe you can speak to our audience a little, because I've certainly worked with like an LDL hyper responder and I've had, you know, clients come to me and say, listen, my doctor's really concerned about this. What can they be speaking to their physician about and how can they ease some of this anxiety and fear that is caused by their physician saying you have to stop what you're doing. And meanwhile, it's given them abstinence and freedom with food. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's the first thing is to first focus on all the things that you've benefited by changing the way you've been eating. And your doctor really needs to understand you're not doing this just because you read about it on the internet and thought it might be cool to try. Like you're doing this for a reason and seeing a benefit from it. Then, um, then they will hopefully see it in a different picture and say, okay, the other question is to say, help me better evaluate my cardiovascular risk to see if this is something that I can continue. So then we're talking about not just LDL, but we're talking about measuring ApoB and LDL particles and the size of your particles and your inflammatory markers. And of course, all your metabolic features, your blood sugar, your hemoglobin A1C, your insulin levels, what are all those markers doing? And then you can look even further, whether it's a coronary calcium score, or a carotid intima media thickness test, right. things where you can actually measure what's going on in your vessels rather than surrogate markers. And, you know, if you have a zero calcium score, the data is pretty clear that you are at a much lower risk, even with high LDL. Now, the question becomes then, is it going to stay that way, right? Is it going to stay that way for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? So it's not that you check it once and you're done, but you can check it once and say, okay, look, there's no emergency here. I've got a zero calcium score. My LDL is a little high. All my other markers are great. There's no emergency here. Let's figure out a program that we can set forth and how we're going to test this to make sure it stays safe. I think that's a very reasonable approach that I would hope most doctors would be open-minded to, but you know, every doctor is a little bit different and, and some are very, they're so steeped in, this is the guideline. This is what the guideline says. If I don't do what the guideline says, I'm going to be at risk. So if you're not going to follow, then no, I'm not going to help you. There are, there are those doctors. And I guess I can say I understand where they're coming from, but I still think it's really unfortunate that, that they can't broaden their scope to work with the patients um, individually. Is there a good lifestyle, a place for medication and for uh, some of these uh, things if the person is already following in the interventions that you will have already suggested? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there is an absolute role for medications in certain situations. And that's where maybe I'm a little bit different than some people in the low-carb world. But as a cardiologist, I see a lot of people who've had stents, who've had bypass, who have very high calcium yeah. scores, who, you know, who have vascular disease. And for them, I do think medications are helpful, but medications as one piece of the treatment puzzle, not as here's your medication and yeah. you're done, right? Yeah. So definitely focusing on nutrition and exercise focusing on medications and, you know, the approach to statins in contemporary medicine is get them on the highest possible dose of statin. Yeah. Well, I tend to focus on getting them on the lowest effective dose, maybe combining different medications at lower doses to prevent potential side effects while still having the impact I want to have of hopefully stabilizing any plaque that's there and reducing the risk of heart attacks if they're someone who's at very high risk for secondary prevention. I um, have rediscovered the concept of numbers needed to treat. This is something I learned mm -hmm. about in my medical school. It didn't really mean much to me, but I've rediscovered yeah. it in, in this work. And the idea that a statin, uh, you know, you need to treat, what is it, like 75 to 150 people to get one effective change? Uh, well, so again, it depends on, there really depends on the population. If you're talking uh -huh. about primary prevention, you're talking yeah. about primary prevention women, it's yeah. like one in 200 
wow. to save one heart attack over yeah. five years. Yeah. Right? But if you're talking about somebody, a man who has had a heart attack, yes. um, it could be one in 32 or one in 36 or something like that to save a heart attack in, in, in five years. So, it, you know, that's where the, the baseline risk and the specific person you're talking about really makes a difference. Yeah. And so number needed to treat is a very powerful way to present it. Like, you yeah. know, I need to treat 200 people with a statin for five years to save one heart attack. Is that worth it for you as an individual? That's yeah. a very different discussion than saying the guidelines say I should start a statin on you. Yeah. <laughs> Those are two yeah. very different discussions. Right Okay. So uh, getting back to uh, pushback stuff. So are you ever worried? Because I know you make yourself available for people if they want to consult, right? For consultation. And I would imagine that there's others on the diet doctor that, that are doing that as well. Are you afraid of, because of your stand of having some sort of pushback, even on a legal basis or something like that? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I guess that's the, the biggest the fear of almost any yeah. physician who's not, yeah. you know, doing cookie cutter by the guidelines treatment. Yeah. Um, but personally, I personally, I'm not worried about it just because of the way I speak to my patients and, and the way I work with my patients. I'm very clear. I say, look, the guidelines say you should be on the statin, but here are some of the considerations that we can talk about where maybe the guidelines wouldn't apply to you. Okay. And here's some of the things we can do to monitor for safety. And again, I, I don't, I would never say you should never be on a statin. Statins are poison. We should get rid of statins. And, you know, all you need to do is change the way you're eating and everything's going to be perfect. Like, no, you set a, you set a plan in motion and you design a follow-up to test how it's doing. And yeah. you monitor people about how they're progressing. And if they're having evidence of vascular disease, and if they are, then maybe you need to, alt you, you know, you need to change courses. So because I, I, I think I'm pretty fastidious about designing a program and a plan and checking in the future. I, I personally, I don't have that much concern over, over legal, legal concerns, but it, it frustrates me to see where it has taken place, you know, where, you know, of course yeah. the famous, you know, with Dr. Tim Noakes, that yes. probably the most famous example, but that that's really frustrating. I mean, hopefully and, and, it will be less and less because now it is, you know, even a low carb keto diet is in the ADA guidelines. Yes. Is something yes. that is beneficial for glycemic control, right? So it's starting to work its way in the mainstream, which is very important and should be happening. And we have Dr. Evelyn Roy in uh, Montreal, Canada, where she got, it's not quite the Tim Noakes story, but it's a similar story where she was basically had to close her practice down because it was so against the standard of practice. So anyway, I see that the diet doctor, you're using that as a way to sort of spread the seeds of information in a larger way. Are, do you feel like it's working? Do you think that more people are catching on, especially in the medical community? I, I do. I do. And, uh, you know, we, just by how big our map has gotten of, of doctors and, and clinicians who are providing low carb advice or trained in low carb, it keeps growing and growing. So that's one very good little thread of evidence that we're having the impact. And we also have a Diet Doctor Pro membership, Diet Doctor DD Pro or Diet Doctor Professional membership. So in our, in our DD Pro membership, it's specifically geared towards clinicians. And we've seen a lot of really good response to that and a lot of clinicians who are interested in joining that so they can be connected to their patients through our website and, and giving our materials to their patients to help them. The more that I see these grow, the more encouraged I am that we are really having the beneficial impact that we're trying to have. Yeah. Okay. Is there anything that you would recommend for us as, cause we're also trying to do the same thing. Any recommendations that you have for us of something that we can do to get also to spread the word? Yeah. You know, it's, it's an interesting question. I think one, I think training courses are really helpful. 
because people want the knowledge and, you know, people need credits anyway. So if you can somehow combine those, I think that can be really helpful. And two is just building the community, finding ways to engage with clinicians and spreading the word through that. So whether it's like, you know, grand rounds type talking or, or even just having a Q&A session every so often with clinicians and with patients, I think can be really helpful. Just ways to bring people together. Yeah. And, you know, now with, with Zoom and all the different online tools we have, it's kind of a lot easier than it was 10 years ago, to be sure, yeah. uh, to do something like that. So I think taking advantage of that can be really helpful. So that's something we're working on building out more and more at Diet Doctor as well. Good. What do you see as the biggest problems that you're dealing with today? Um, is it the <laughs> pharmaceutical industry? Is it the food industry? What is it for you guys? Well, I mean, I think the food industry is a big one, you know, whether it's the food industry and it's sponsorship, it's money, right? Because, you know, you look at, I get my American College of Cardiology journal and the first thing I see is an advertisement for a blood thinner medication. And then I open it up and I see an advertisement for statins yeah. and the ads are everywhere. And the, these institutions are are funded by the makers of cereals and the makers of seed oils and of course the makers of medications. And that's what we're up against. That amount of money and influences is very intimidating and hard to break through. So that's definitely one problem that I see for sure. And the other is just, you know, fighting misinformation. Those are the things I'm trying to fight against and trying to promote a more nuanced understanding of, of the science, whether it's environment, whether it's health and fighting sort of what is perceived to be a, a social narrative that's so important, but is really just too superficial. So, you know, those are both so important and so misunderstood, I think, and, and mispromoted in so many ways. And so what are you doing differently than Atkins? Because you guys are not getting dismissed and laughed at in the way that he did. Well, I mean, I know he was well, popular for a while, but then at the end, yeah. it was just like an experiment that fell flat on its face, it seems. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think... I don't want to speak to Atkins specifically, but I think one of the problems with different movements of, of the keto diet is the okay. use of products, right? And bars and cookies okay. and, and sweets and, you know, but keto versions of it. Like I, I just, that's not yeah. the best way to approach metabolic health. That's not the best way to approach healthy weight loss. So I think that's one problem. And the other is focusing on how to measure metabolic health, healthy weight loss, not just weight loss. But how yeah. to use fat mass, maintain lean mass, do it in a way that you can enjoy and is sustainable and is improving your metabolic health, like really focusing on those details rather than just what a number on the scale says. I think that's important too. Yeah, good. Yeah, I think that's a really important point because that, that the focus was a lot on weight loss. And you're what you're talking about is something far broader than that. It includes weight loss, but it's not the key. And similarly with us. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Do you have a bucket list guest for your podcast that you haven't gotten yet that we maybe should be interested to know about? Wow. Wow. You come up with the tough questions. A bucket list guest. I should have prepared for this one and thought about it. I mean, there's so many people, you know, on the one hand, I kind of want to get like some of the low carbon keto celebrities on just because they really help, I, you know, for better or for worse, they really help push the movement forward because they're mm -hmm. so popular. But at the same time, I also want to get a lot of the researchers who are doing research, whether it's on satiety or weight loss or carb, you get sort of the researchers on as well. So I, I can't think of one off the top of my head, but what I, what I really want to sort of do that combination of like, you know, people to, to motivate others, 
and get them excited about it and others to explain the science in ways that people understand and really sort of bring those two worlds together. That's what I'm, I'm hoping to do and continuing to do with the podcast. Yeah, we're trying to look for that low carb keto celebrity who also <laughs> maybe has like food addiction and yeah. then they're going to like change the world because it's going to be so trendy to do what we're doing, right? Yeah, exactly. So, right. That's it. That's it. We got to be trendy. That's it. Yeah. Exactly. Also intelligent, which is one of the things I really like about your podcast, Brett, is that it's it's intelligent, you know, it's well like you really researched the, the subject when you interviewed me. It was like, wow, this is good. So, it, you know, it, it's trendy but also worthy of listening to. Yeah. Yeah, but I guess now now that I've given it a little more thought, my son would love me forever if I could find like a major league baseball player following the keto diet and get him on my podcast. My son would love me forever if I interviewed an MLB player. So maybe just for dad of the year award, that would be my, my, my best guess. <laughs> awesome. So what is next for you? What are you working on now specifically, or what are you excited to work on in the future coming up? Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to sort of dig deeper into this whole concept of, you know, if keto and low carb isn't working, why and what can we do about it? So that, that's really where we're putting a lot of our efforts at Diet Doctor. And then the second part though, which is what I've always been interested in and still I'm going to continue to tirelessly work on is, is getting the understanding of keto and low carb to become more accepted within the medical community and doing yes. it in a way that is sure. reasonable and logical and based in evidence and really making it so that doctors don't cringe when they hear it, but doctors mm -hmm. think, oh yeah, there is a definite role for that. And let me think if that fits with this patient or not. Just mm -hmm. not that it has to be for everybody because it's not. But right now, the reaction is like, ooh, no, 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 we're not going to consider that. As opposed to, well, yeah, that's right. It can help in so many different ways. Let me see if that's the right fit for you. That's the transition I really want to help try and uh, promote within the medical community. Awesome. So we do have a signature question. And it is, if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about either sugar and processed foods or keto and low carb, what would it be? Oh, yeah. If I, a younger version of myself would be, don't believe what you're taught about nutrition, <laughs> understand the specifics of nutrition science, understand the quality of the evidence before just taking what people tell you at face value. That would be the number one thing. Love it. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for being yeah, here today. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your experience. Oh, yeah. Of course, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one -on -one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours. <laughs>